Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and today we have a new type of episode for PathPod. PathPod has taken you beyond the scope where you've heard about the lives of pathologists outside of work. Today we're around the scope to hear about pathologists' work in depth, and of course where else to start other than pediatric pathology. I have a wonderful group of pediatric pathologists who are joining me today to really represent the breadth of the specialty. I'm joined today by Dr. Charles Timmons, Professor of Pathology and Pathology Residency Program Director at UT Southwestern Medical School, Dr. Irene Castaneda-Sanchez, she's the Medical Director of Pathology at Cook Children's Hospital, Dr. Jennifer Black, Chair of Pediatric Pathology and Pediatric Pathology Fellowship Director at Children's Hospital Colorado, Dr. Christina Pacheco, Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Washington, and Pediatric Pathology Fellowship Director at Seattle Children's Hospital, and Dr. Beverly Rogers, Chief of Pathology at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and Adjunct Professor of Pathology and Pediatrics at the Emory School of Medicine. Welcome, everybody. How y'all doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. So residents and, and fellows are really going to want to know about all the folks in this group. This group covers a lot of different aspects of pediatric pathology. I think pediatric pathology is an incredibly diverse specialty because there's a lot of different aspects to it. So why don't we start with, Charles, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in medicine and how you got interested in pediatric pathology. Um. I don't even remember how I got interested in medicine. <laughs> that was just too long ago. <laughs> I, I think I was basically interested in genetics and things like that because I had this really weird family and was trying to find an explanation <laughs> for them. Um, so I, I went into uh, an MD-PhD program uh, at the University of North Carolina in human genetics, and my graduate advisor was a pediatrician, and I thought I was going to go into pediatrics uh, until I did my pediatrics clerkship uh, and realized that that was really a bad fit for me uh, uh, in terms of some of the, the social overlay and that my interest was more in the, along the lines uh, uh, of disease uh, identification rather than routine patient care. Um, so uh, I figured, well, pathology, although I had no real role models in that. So I started off as a clinical pathology resident because I was comfortable in the laboratory. And then they were shorthanded on the autopsy service. And so I said, oh, sure, I'll help out. Uh, and it was it was fun. And, you know, like my first case uh, was amniotic bands, and I knew what it was, and the attending didn't. Uh, oh. And, you know, that, that was some positive reinforcement. And so I switched into APCP uh, and then had a, a rotation at the Children's Hospital in Chicago, where, where I was a resident, uh, and realized, oh my gosh, this is what I should be doing all along. And so then did the fellowship. And so on paper, it looks like a perfectly normal uh, uh, sequence of events from uh, uh, a you know, PhD uh, working in pediatric disease to residency to a pediatric path fellowship. But in fact, I had no idea all the way along on what I was doing. And that's why I'm, you know, so devoted to uh, counseling residents to explore and make informed decisions and change your mind if you find something better. 
That's awesome. Irene, you want to tell us a little bit about what got you interested in medicine and how did you end up in pediatric pathology? Sure. So medicine is my second career. Um, I started out as a specialist in school psychology. I had a master's degree and worked in the schools. Um, was functioned very much like a diagnostician. So I did testing for special education eligibility and was also a case manager for the special ed students on two campuses. And I just, I loved my job. I always love what you know, I have, I have, a, I think, a good attitude about uh, what I do. So I, I loved my job, and but I really fought, found myself drawn to the medical reports that came back on some of these kids. A lot of them um, had seizure disorders. And so I thought, I want to go to med school and become a neurologist. And so I applied to medical school, got in at UT Houston. And after my first neurology rotation, I said, I am not going to be a neurologist. There's no way. And um, we had a very strong pathology um, group at UT Houston who, who was very fun. They just made their, their courses fun. And uh, I got drawn into pathology that way, applied to residency, um, got into UT San Antonio uh, pathology residency program. And uh, it's mainly uh, working out of the university hospital and the VA system. So there was not a strong pediatric pathology um, uh, program there, but we did rotate out to uh, Krista Santa Rosa where Dr. Victor Saldivar uh, influenced me. Uh, and um, I got really interested in pediatric pathology. She said, if you, if you're going to apply, she said, you've got to apply now. And because what does she say? Because Beverly moves fast. And so uh, talking about Dr. Rogers, who was at, uh, in Dallas at the time. So uh, applied and got accepted at, um, UT Southwestern Children's Dallas, did my um, pediatric fellowship there, and then got my first job in, in Fort Worth, where I still am 11 years later. That's cool. Bev, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about what got you interested in medicine and how you ended up in pediatric pathology? Yeah, I guess as opposed to, to my moving fast, which is really kind of amazing, um, moving fast into medicine was, um, I had a very similar trajectory as, as Charles did. <laughs> I am. Um, I went to medical school because <clears throat> I really liked genetics, and um, I thought, well, I can do a PhD or I can do an MD, and I can probably do more with an MD. So I got into med school, and and then in anatomy, I found out what pathology was. I'd had no idea, and and when I went, because one of our anatomy professors was a pathologist, and and I said, that's what I want to do, because I I absolutely love the laboratory. I love science, you know, over the art of medicine, um, discovery. And so um, in my fourth year in, in, in med school, I took an autopsy rotation and it was essentially a perinatal autopsy service because that's what uh, UTMB had. And it was really enjoyable. I, I loved the discovery part of it. And so at that point, I said, well, I, I want to be a pediatric pathologist. And so that was even in med school and, um, and just went on from there. And, and the thing that I love about pediatric pathology is that you can do anything. It's, it's, um, and, and so I have, I mean, I, I, I get to do um, uh, perinatal pathology on a consult basis because we don't have perinatal at our place, but, but, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. 
Um, I get to do a lot of lab medicine. I do enjoy administrating most days um, because I like building a department and Charles is chuckling, yes. Um, and, uh, and, and I just love, I've done a lot of work with, um, with industry and, and uh, developing tests, you know, rapid infectious disease tests. It's all fun and you can do it all. You just have to figure out what you want to do. And I love children's hospitals. And as you can tell, this group here, we all know each other, you know, and, and there is something so special about pediatric pathology as a, as a, as a community. Um, we just know each other. Yeah, it, it really is a very small world. And a resident who attended the virtual fall SPP meeting even told me that he picked up on that sense of community. You know, when you mentioned perinatal pathology, I was reminded of one of the first placentas I grossed that was something you and I signed out. It was identical triplets. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, poor woman. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. Christina, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in medicine and ended up in pediatric pathology. So my mom is a pediatrician and my dad is a hematologist, oncologist. So when they have children, they're <laughs> little pathologists. <laughs> um, so that's, I don't know. I grew up just being around my parents. So they liked what they did a lot. So it seemed like a good, a good career option. So, um, but actually when I went through medical school, I didn't really realize that pathology was um, was something you could do when you finished. Like I thought of pathology as this course that we um, that we took, kind of, and it was very removed from um, sort of the clinical aspect of pathology. And so I actually did a year of internal medicine, um, and then I switched. To pathology after I realized I saw the light <laughs> and I, I was like oh this is great like I loved going to look at um, the liver biopsies and all of that and then um, I was in Cincinnati and Cincinnati has a wonderful children's hospital and I had a great mentor in Dr. Bobie and so that's how I ended up being a pediatric pathologist. <laughs> Dr. Bovey is Really great person. I really enjoy catching up with him when we have in-person meetings. He's fun to chat with. Jennifer, everybody should probably know, if they haven't figured it out by now, that you're currently my boss. So speaking of knowing everybody, <laughs> so tell us a little great. bit about... Lucky to be so. <laughs> oh, thank you. So tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and pediatric pathology. Well, it was one of those things that I, my mom just always told me, you need to go to medical school. We didn't have any doctors in the family, but I was, you know, the weird kid that was intrigued by roadkill instead of put off by it. Like, are those intestines? What is that? You know? And so it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I really liked English. So I majored in biology and in English in college, but I decided that I liked English, but not enough to, I wasn't a good enough writer. And I didn't want to teach it. So I thought, well, let me go the biology way. And, um, and I, I was also very interested. I, I lost a, a young sister. Um, she was nine months old and she died of meningococcal meningitis. So I was really intrigued by infectious diseases and how something so tiny can, you know, completely, you know, be devastating. So I was thinking about infectious diseases and I always loved kids. So I thought about pediatrics as well. And I had no idea what pathology was until I was in um, 
I was my first year of med school and I was looking at, um, we, we still, most of our histology instruction was computer-based. So you just looked at the images and memorized them and moved on, but they did still set up microscopes with slides. And I was the only dork, you know, who spent time doing that. Everybody else did their computer stuff and moved on. And I was, you know, the last one sitting and I was like, oh, this is really kind of neat. And um, a woman came along to clean up the slides and she was like, you need to go into pathology. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I looked into it and I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe so. And, and I did a rotation and, and I really loved it. And um, during my first rotation, I actually met Bahig Shihada, who a lot of people know. And, um, and he saw my interest and sort of took me under his wing and introduced me to pediatric pathology. And I've always really liked the developmental aspects of it. Um, and, and of course, the pediatric tumors, I always found really fascinating. So that's where Pete's path started. And then, but when I started residency, I decided to try to keep an open mind, because like Bev said, there's just so many things you could do. Like I, I liked infectious diseases, I could have gone and, you know, to medical microbiology or, you know, so, um, but then um, one of the first autopsies that I had as a first year resident was this infant who had, um, who died of a bleeding duodenal ulcer and nobody could figure it out. It's like a six month old baby. And, um, she was, um, um, uh, a black from a black family. And there was this history of, um, of, um, a failure to thrive. So we, we did cytogenetics just to be thorough because that hadn't been done. And uh, there wasn't a lot to find other than the ulcer, but like, why would this baby have an ulcer? And then we found out that um, when I looked at the tissues and she had this really spectacular steatosis and um, her pancreas was okay, but she had very inspissated mucus in her appendix. And so we still had uh, a fresh fibroblast culture. And so we, we tested her for, you you know, CFTR mutations and sure enough, she had two unique ones. And that was just sort of it. I just thought that is amazing. And, um, and then, you know, I was the only one who was interested in, in the developmental lung phase and all the autopsies. And I, I remember one of my more senior attendings being like, oh, not another one. Um, because Sarah Sabo, one of our colleagues graduated from the same program and decided to go into pediatric pathology. So I was like, all right, this is it. The, I, this is what I want to do. That's great. So we've all mentioned a little bit about different areas we work in and autopsy and anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. To go through the Pediatric Pathology Fellowship, it's one year of training, and you do have to do a certain number of autopsies. You have to do 40 autopsies, and you have to see a certain number of, of surgical specimens. But after that, you can go a lot of different directions. So everybody has different things that they sign out and see. Tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Christina, do you want to start? Um, so I mainly sign out um, GIs and surgicals. I, um, I don't do autopsy in my position here. Um, but... Um, so those are the cases that I see. And then um, with uh, the fellowship, I do some administrative um, stuff as well as teaching. And then um, the residents that come over uh, from UW, they spend uh, seven to eight weeks with us um, during their second year. And so I coordinate their uh, rotation when they're over here at Seattle Children's. Um, so um, that's pretty much uh, pretty much what I do. 
my prior position. So I actually worked in community practice and then uh, switched over to academics. And so um, when I did more in community practice, I was um, doing some clinical pathology as well. Um, and here I do uh, go to the utilization management uh, meetings that we have um, for our laboratory, but um, otherwise, mainly um, mainly signing out anatomic pathology and doing stuff with the fellowship. <laughs> so Bev, you mentioned that you do clinical pathology and you see some perinatal consults. What other things have you done at different stages in your career? <laughs> Mercy, surgical pathology. I've been medical director of a blood bank. I um, actually took over the transfusion committee at, at Children's in Dallas from uh, Charles. <laughs> the, the minute I came, he said, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, fellowship director. Um and, and really work a lot with industry. Um, some of the some of the tests, um, the rapid infectious disease tests, um, are, are ones that that I was I was very fortunate to have a hand in. So, pretty much all of it. Um, and and I will tell you, you know, administration. I know that that um, a few on this call are are chiefs. And I my younger son many years ago asked me. He said, "Mom, mom, what do you what do you do between meetings if you don't have a meeting?" <laughs> I thought, "Well, I don't know, you know, no." But there is a lot to do. Um, so, kind of everything really. I've directed clinical chemistry when I needed to, and I didn't have a chemist that was here in Atlanta, um, and uh, got a good consultant to help. You know, that's all you can say. You just uh, keep it going. Irene, tell us a little bit about what kind of things you see in Fort Worth right now. So I am at about a 400-bed community hospital, and um, there we've got five full-time pediatric pathologists, and we've got one half-time hematopathologist. Um, of those five pediatric pathology, uh, pathologists, uh, two of them have dual boards. One has an additional board certification in hematopathology and another in molecular pathology. So it's a, it's a pretty strong group. And, and in, in the community hospital, we, uh, we have to cover everything and be prepared to uh, medically direct at any part of the lab. I am very fortunate to have a full-time, okay, so I've, I was a uh, one of the staff pediatric pathologists for, I guess, at least nine years uh, until I became medical director. And, and uh, uh, during that time, most of my uh, work included general surgical pathology, pediatric surgical pathology, um, autopsy, we covered uh, what we called a clinical rotation where we do review some peripheral smears uh, and, and consult with the laboratory technologists if they've got, you know, any questions about coagulation, about um, uh, a smear, uh, a particular cell. Um, and so, and, uh, and then I've been medical director for a, a I guess a little over two years and I still carry the same full load as the other pathologists, but have of course, additional administrative duties, but uh, I'm very grateful to have a, a clinical microbiologist uh, running our, our uh, microbiology section, especially with COVID. She's been just tremendous. Uh, but, you know, there are times like that said where you'll be without a microbiologist or 
a chemist, for example, and I, I'm also very fortunate to have a PhD chemist uh, running our chemistry group, and he's he's amazing and very happy there. So I'm, I'm I, I like to keep my 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 finger on the pulse and see how happy my my people are, and um, thankfully they seem to to be uh, very happy where they're, and I'm, I'm very grateful to have them. They're great resources, not only to me and us in the entire lab, but also um, the hospital and to, to other clinical staff. So they very quickly uh, become known and uh, accessed by pharmacy and you know all the other the other um, special specialists. Jennifer, what kinds of things do you do on a day-to-day basis? In terms of my clinical service, it's all anatomic pathology. Um, so I do routine surgicals, frozen sections, all of that. I do autopsies and um, a lot of GI biopsies, I think as, as, as most of us are familiar with, that seems to be a big part of, of many pediatric pathology practices, right? And, um, and then apart from that, I, I also have uh, administrative responsibilities, one with the fellowship direction, with which I enjoy. And then also um, I've been in my position as chair for a little over about two and a half years now. Um, and, um, you know, as the others have said, that's, that's been great. I took a slightly different path though, and that I don't, um, I did not take over the CLIA medical director role. And there were a lot of reasons for that. I'm still pretty active um, with children's oncology group and research related to that. So that's my um, specific interest within pediatric pathology is pediatric bone and soft tissue tumors. So um, still developing that and, and actively participating in that. Um, and though I, I definitely contribute to the medical direction of the laboratory, I don't actually hold the license, which gives me a lot of flexibility, I think, in terms of um, what I can do. So I spend more of my administrative time really advocating for the department and for the laboratory and helping others, helping develop strategy um, across the laboratory. Um, and, uh, and then I partner with Mark Lovell currently to, to do the CLIA medical director part of that, which has been really successful because it would have been, um, at my level of experience, especially not having practiced clinical pathology in a while, I think it would have been really difficult to take over this role and to do both and do them well. So this has allowed me to sort of grow into that, into my role and, um, and provide leadership and, and strategic vision um, while having um, others to support the nuts and bolts. Charles, tell us a little bit about what you see on a day-to-day basis and, and what, what things you've signed out in your career. Oh, um, well, I was lucky coming out uh, of residency um, because my fellowship was two years. Uh, and one of the years was the standard AP fellowship for pediatric path. And the other year was a non-standard uh, pediatric clinical pathology fellowship, um, which I wish everybody could do because it, it was really helpful. So. Um, uh, I started my career uh, signing out anatomic path, autopsies, and surgical path, uh, which I still do, but uh, I was also the director of the hematopathology lab here at Children's, um, and for many, many years uh, signed out heme uh, as well as anatomic path. Um, gradually, that, that part of um, my daily existence has contracted and, and gone to uh, board-certified hematopathologists at the university as 
uh, that's been consolidated across campus. Uh, so now really, uh, uh, I mainly uh, see heme slides just as a consultant before we uh, get a real hematopathologist to, to look at them. Uh, but I do also sign out uh, our globin uh, sequencing uh, uh, cases uh, for the molecular lab uh, and the hemoglobin electrophoresis HPLC stuff, uh, which is a, a lot of fun in addition to the, um, the autopsies and surgicals. So hopefully anybody who's listening to this in training right now has picked up on the theme that there's a lot of things you can do as a pediatric pathologist and a lot of ways to customize your careers. I think one of the things that I often get questions about is what's the job market like? And I, from everything I've seen, it seems like it's always been pretty good. There's always been a number of positions posted and, you know, places I've worked have been hiring pretty much consistently as I've been there. What's, what's your guys' experience in job market? And what do you tell residents about the job market? Well, it's really good. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we, we have openings. I bet some of the other people on, on this group have openings as well. So we have a we have an opening, um, and I feel like any time. I mean, I've switched jobs a, a couple times since I started, and any time I wanted to move, there were <laughs> there were there were jobs listed, so that um, worked out well. I think, um, but I think when people ask about um, you know what the jobs are, I always say that the job opportunities are good, but still you should always just do what you love because. Uh, your your life is long, and you don't want to make your days longer. <laughs> so sure. something else that I that I've noticed lately, um, as Charles said, he had two years in fellowship, and I did too, and it was it was is invaluable. But but it really is a one year fellowship now for PD Path, and so there there are often uh, 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 people coming out who do PD Path and then another subspecialty. Um, and that can be very valuable, um, you know, molecular path, heme path, cytopath, um, just something to to add a dimension to the group where they'll be entering. Yeah, actually, I did um, two years of fellowship as well. I did a year of research after uh, my uh, first year of just of my like to take the boards regular uh, fellowship, and I was in um, a hepatology lab. In our program, we have a spot like if people want to do a second year, but just nobody's nobody's opted for <laughs> for it. I don't think so, but um, it is available. It's it's more geared towards somebody that was interested in doing some research. I would echo that too about the the second or multiple board, although it takes a lot of time. And, um, you know, especially when you're eager to get going and, you know, to have to take another year to do fellowship, but especially in pediatric pathology, I feel like it's especially valuable because in most pediatric hospital settings, there may not be enough volume to justify having one or, or more, you know, full-time um, you know, people working in a specific area like neuropathology or, or cytopathology. So if you can wear two hats, it's a lot easier to, to bring you into, to sort of, to do that, especially when there's, there's not enough, you know, to have just one dedicated to a, a specific area. I did two years as well. And I did a research year and I'm so glad that I did. I really liked basic research. I had a good experience in college and wanted to do MD PhD, but it ended up, I, you know, 
that that didn't happen. And so it was nice to be able to, well, I guess one to (laughs) close that chapter in some ways um, to be able to say, no, I really just like being involved in this and I like collaborative research, but um, yeah, but just again, underscores that there's just so many different things that you can do. Thinking back over the years, we've had people combine PDPath with forensics, with heme, with blood bank, with renal pathology, uh, with GI pathology. Uh, I'm probably even forgetting some. Molecular. Molecular. Mm-hmm. It, and it, yeah, it fits with anything. And if we get an applicant with those credentials, they're absolutely at the top of the list. There's so many opportunities in pediatric pathology. What do you guys see as barriers for residents becoming interested in pediatric pathology and getting, you know, getting getting to the point of applying to fellowship programs? Oh, well, I can hit that one. One of the big barriers uh, is just finding out that it exists as a subspecialty. Um, you know, we've been pushing really hard to get it moved earlier into residency programs so people uh, have the experience and, and know that, uh, that that's something they want to do. When fellowship applications have to go out, like at the beginning of the third year or even the end of the second year, a lot of people haven't had a pediatric path experience at that point. And that, that's, that's a real problem for us, I think. Uh, so the more we can uh, expose people early, the, the better it will be for them and for us. I think too, some of the programs that are um, more based in adult hospitals have uh, more of like a systems-based sign-out and that um, sort of competes with the more generalist philosophy of, of pediatric pathology. So depending on what type of environment you're in, whether you do as a resident your rotation at a freestanding children's hospital versus like one versus signing out pediatric cases within an embedded like system sign out. I think that can really affect your idea of pediatric pathology as a specialty sometimes. Our hospital in Fort Worth is is pretty prominent in the area and we've got two medical schools here. So we get to see medical students in their uh, third or fourth year and um, having them come through Cook, I think, uh, at least exposes them to to pediatric pathology. As you know, we have to teach more and more in our medical school curriculum. It becomes harder to find a place, a dedicated place for dedicated pathology training, and so it gets truncated more and more. And so, fighting to keep those exposures or finding creative ways to make sure that we can still link to other rotations, like in surgery, maybe making sure they have a frozen section experience or, you know, other ways like that will, will be, will help us to preserve that exposure. What advice would you give to residents that are at a program that's, as Christina mentioned, perhaps um, subspecialized by organ system, and they really don't have pediatric pathology on their campus? I, I think one thing you can do is actually an away rotation. Um, we, certainly, many of us would offer that. And I think it's Im- important if if someone thinks they're interested in pediatric pathology, um, it's important to go to a place where um, it is the bread and butter of of pediatric pathologists. It's interesting when you 
when and you know my my specific interest in anatomic is perinatal path and when you watch perinatal path practiced at at a hospital that doesn't have pediatric pathologists it's a very different uh, very different practice typically than at a hospital where there are pediatric pathologists who specialize in that. I was just going to echo what Bev said. Uh, we love to have people come for, for away rotations. One of the benefits of this whole pandemic experience is um, immersing everybody in the ability to do um, digital or remote learning. And so our very own Dr. Arnold is working at working on that at our institution, trying to, to develop some um, online learning opportunities uh, for either international or, or, or other uh, people that are interested in pediatric pathology that can't travel because of restrictions right now. And um, I think that, that there's a lot of promise there in being able to develop that for people that can't either can't afford to do an away rotation or find it difficult to do it, but to still be able to get that exposure and education. Yeah, I think virtual options have certainly become increasingly popular because people can't travel, and I hope that'll continue, and I hope things like Path Elective will also contribute to that. The SPP does have a McAdams stipend for uh, 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 individuals who, who do want to, to go to another uh, to broaden their experience. Uh, please check it out on our website. So the SPP also has resident recruitment awards that um, are, are available to give trainees exposure to the meetings, which right now they're virtual, but there's still a lot to be learned and they're great networking opportunities, um, probably a little bit easier when they're in person, but also when they're virtual, there's ways to meet um, experienced pediatric pathologists and, you know, pick their brains about, you know, questions that, that trainees would have about how to get into pediatric pathology. So we mentioned SPP a little bit, and we should probably say that's the Society for Pediatric Pathology. And I think we have a number of experts about the society on the call. So why don't we talk a little bit about what SPP is and how people can get involved. And, and I think SPP is a pretty big reason why pediatric pathology feels like a small community. So I can give some history. The Society for Pediatric Pathology was established in 1965. And uh, it was originally called the Pediatric Pathology Club. Um, and as it grew in the number of uh, folks who attended, it morphed to the Society for Pediatric Pathology. And today, I think there are around, others would know better, but, but maybe 600 members. Um, it, is, it is, I would say it's weighted toward North America, but does garner... Um, uh, uh, members from across the world in, in conjunction with that. And, and I would say, first of all, that it is, it is how we know each other. You know, we get together. There's, um, there's a lot of connection within the Society for Pediatric Pathology, including through the website. Um, but we are often paired up with the pediatric PAE, DIA, Pediatric Pathology Society, which is primarily based in Europe, but again, garners people from around the world. And together, our societies, we meet uh, together every mm, certain number of years, be it five years, 10 years. And, and we really do have a community. We go back and forth when we can travel 
um, uh, across the Atlantic and across the Pacific. And, and we tend to know each other around the world. And then I'll turn it over to those who, who know more recently. Well, I would just make a point that um, uh, there is a junior membership category in the Society for Pediatric Pathology uh, with sort of a, a, a nominal uh, uh, dues fee uh, because we want to uh, make these opportunities available uh, for medical students, residents, and fellows who, who may find some interest in pediatric pathology, uh, whether it's for a career or, or just as an adjunct to, to what their uh, real professional goals are. Um, at the fall meeting, uh, we had a case report uh, session that was uh, open only to trainees. Uh, so, so really trying to, uh, to make these opportunities available for, for uh, individuals at the beginning of their careers. It's not just a society of old people. <laughs> to me, like the Society for Pediatric Pathology was particularly important, I think, because I switched from community practice to academics and sort of had maintained a little bit of that through going to the meetings and um, just, um, I don't know, seeing people. And I think, you know, a lot of us have friends from that we only know from going to meetings that the SPP, the SPP organizes um, because it's like, it's about science and uh, pediatric pathology, but it's also about like networking and um, mentorships, whether they be kind of more official through like COG, which is separate from SDP, but definitely contributes to SDP, or, you know, just more impromptu mentorships that sort of spring up through relationships. So it's a very special thing. Charles mentioned the fall meeting. We probably should say that SPP meets twice a year, generally in person when we can and virtually when we can't. The spring meeting is linked to the USCAP meeting and the fall meeting happens at different host institutions every year. And I remember some really great meetings. I'm sure you guys remember even more of really great meetings than I do. What are some memorable meetings that stick out for you guys? I was telling someone the other day, eating, eating lobster in Louisville. Um, because the banquet was all you could eat lobster because they have a holding tank there for FedEx. And I, I'm not sure I remember the science of that meeting, but I sure do remember the banquet. And, um, and I remember an Aspen, Aspen meeting when I was very new in the society. And, um, and it was an interim meeting uh, and it was in Aspen, Colorado. And I remember meeting Bruce Beckwith and, uh, you know, Charles trained with him actually, but uh I, I, I just, you know, I presented a couple of papers and, and afterwards I, I went up and, and I thought I'm talking to Bruce Beckwith, you know, it was just amazing. And I thought, my gosh, how do you do this? And that's, that's kind of the whole feel of the society. It's just um, a very, uh, a very uh, connected group of people um, without egos. I think, you know, Bruce certainly didn't have one very gracious. That's so true, Bev. I agree. I think that's one of the, you know, it's one thing to be interested in something and to check it out, but then to be embraced and for um, all of the members to to show genuine interest in you and, you know, what, what you want to do in pediatric pathology. I think that's something that we really foster really nicely and uh, hopefully, you know, get some genuine interest from trainees who are 
you know, thinking about it, but maybe not sure to commit because there is such tremendous support, I think, from one another. And I remember co-presenting with you, Jennifer, over in Prague. Was it Prague? And uh, uh, it was was a European meeting. And uh, again, we just uh, needed to see each other. That was, I was going to mention earlier, if it's not an option for you to do um, a fellowship program in the United States, then the International Pediatric Pathology Association, or IPA, also offers a training program for those who can't do a fellowship in the traditional way that's available to us. Um, And that's also another fantastic um, opportunity to hear from experts all over the world. It's a a five-year commitment um, and There's a bit of a waiting list, so it takes some time to get in. But once you're in, you go for a week of really concentrated. And I mean, this is not, you get to see some fun things, but this isn't a, a, to go on a tour. (laughs) You're going to learn a lot of pediatric pathology. And um, so it's just concentrated with that within a a week. And you do that over a course of five years. So you get to see a broad range of topics. And um, so that's another option for people that don't have a pediatric pathology training program available where they are. Well, somebody has to mention the meeting where Beverly Rogers sang the PCR blues for the society as, as her presidential talk. <laughs> I don't know if your listeners will be interested in that, but it of was certainly of meetings. I, I think we have many. Too. Yeah, you wouldn't I think, think it, but pediatric pathologists can party. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think we've seen many displays of talent at our at our meetings that are quite memorable. I do remember some symposia. Yeah. One one being uh, in a GI pathology. It was chaired by Pierre Russo, I think, who's you know one of the the leaders in in get pediatric gastrointestinal pathology. And you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is amazing. And I, re- I remember, I remember a talk, it was a, it was a uh, Farber landing lecture and, and maybe that wasn't called that at the time. It may have uh, just been a uh, uh, Farber, but it was um, Kurt Benershka, you know, kind of the, the father of placental pathology, giving, um, giving a one hour talk about twins and uh, again, just thinking this is this is absolutely remarkable. It was great to hear about some other societies that are in the pediatric pathology space. And we mentioned Children's Oncology Group earlier, COG. Tell us a little bit about how COG overlaps with the pediatric pathology community. So um, the Children's Oncology Group is an organization that uh, focuses on identifying optimal treatments for cancers in young patients. And um, there are a variety of strategies that they use, but it's a, a group that's mostly composed of oncologists, but of course it takes a village to treat these patients. And so uh, it's really a multidisciplinary group that includes pediatric oncologists, pediatric surgeons, um, pediatric orthopedic surgeons, and other subspecialty surgeons, um, pathologists, radiologists, and sort of the whole gamut of anyone that cares for children who who have cancer. And the real benefit of it is that um, it it brings um, cutting edge medicine and really helps standardize that across the board to any institution that's enrolled. On the pathology side of that, it allows um, us to really get a, a look at a lot of, of concentrated tumors in one exposure. So for instance, um, my area of interest is non-rhabdomyosarcoma. 
soft tissue sarcomas in our SDS, which is a mouthful. Um, and Mike does the, the rhabdomyosarcomas. Uh, it's, you know, you might see a handful of some of these rare tumors in your career, but when you're working with the COG, you get to see a lot of them, which is exciting because then you actually get to make some conclusions about um, either their appearance or their genetics or other aspects of their biology. And, um, and so it's a really nice opportunity to get to understand the science um, behind the, the treatment and uh, really see yourself as part of the team and taking care of kids with cancer. Now, how that overlaps with SPP is that, of course, a lot of the, the pathologists who review um, and centrally review these tumors to make sure that all the diagnoses are, are accurate um, are also members of SPP. So a lot of us cross over in that regard. And um, there are a lot of opportunities there for involvement for pathologists who have a specific interest in, um, in pediatric tumor pathology. Unfortunately, it's not really open to trainees, but once, um, once you're um, finished with training and you're in your career, um, you can get involved as um, a young investigator and um, you get paired with a more senior um person or pathologist who's, who's interested in, in a, a specific tumor type that you may have interest in. And, um, and it sets up a really nice mentoring relationship so that you can learn more and develop your own expertise and potentially go on to become a central reviewer yourself. And um, once that happens, the people that are involved with COG tend to become the experts in pediatrics. Of course, there's a, a whole handful of adult or, you know, legions of adult pathologists who are experts in these individual fields, but not always pediatric pathologists. So it's, it's a nice way to, um, to get involved in that and to um, contribute to the science. I'd like to add, um, this is Irene from Cook, um, that we as a non-academic center, we don't, we are not actively in, involved, although one can be. We've got uh, one of our pathologists is a COG representative and, and attends all meetings annually and then updates the group with any uh, new research studies or um, um, I guess new studies that have, have come up. And uh, our hematology oncology group is very active in enrolling patients on COG as well as other, other um, studies like St. Jude and um, other depending on, on the type of tumor. Um, so just so you know, even though we're not academic um, pathologists actively um, involved with COG, we do play a role. Irene and Christina, you guys have some experience in community practice. Tell us a little bit about how that's different from academic settings as a pediatric pathologist. The only exposure I have to the academic setting was, was my training. And um, so, so what I noticed that I was not doing as uh, a pathologist in the community hospital was having an intermediary or a, a student or a resident kind of cushion between as a cushion between me and the clinician. So um, as a private practice pathologist, our, our communication is directly with the clinician and the clinician, you know, directly calls our office for any results that they may want um, for any consultation for, for a clinical test or, or what have you. So, um, so, so we don't do any teaching. We've got very, we have a loose affiliation with the community um, uh, medical schools. Uh, so we do a limited amount, but um, 
it's really done on a voluntary basis as well. And so if there is a month where we are too busy, we're shorthanded, what have you, we have the luxury to decline that. But uh, for the most part, we're very open to having uh, both uh, medical students. And in particular, we've got hematopathology fellows who need a pediatric pathology or a pediatric hematopathology experience. And so they do reach out to us. But aside from teaching, um, you know, our services is fully clinical. Similarly, like when I was in uh, community practice, we didn't have like set time for like academic pursuits. Um, Like that was sort of just on your own time if you wanted to do those things. Um, But um, we we did have some residents rotate with us, but it wasn't as consistent as obviously it is uh, here at Seattle Children's. Um, I think, you know, there's pluses and minuses, I think, to both sides. Like, I really enjoy the trainees, but the efficiency of community practice is nice, too. <laughs> um, and then uh, I think um, the other thing was, I, at least where I was, um, in Minnesota, we were a little bit more involved. We had more um, crossover with clinical pathology than I think um, we do here, even though we do have some involvement with clinical pathology. um, We don't have like, at my prior job, I was, you know, in charge of like the reference lab services. um, And for a while I did, I was in charge of microbiology. Um, so it's kind of a little bit different than, um, than that because we have in academics, we have, um, you know, PhDs and that are working in our lab and some um, medical microbiologists and those kinds of things. So it's a little bit different, but I think um, the cases um, are pretty similar. And um, I don't know, it, I, I would say it's more similar than dissimilar, except for the academic component, maybe in the, the resident rotators. So I think another thing that I noticed being in in the community hospital is that I don't have that um, adult hospital next door, you know, the academic center where I can, you know, if there's an unusual tumor that fits more of an adult type of cancer that I can just, you know, walk over and 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 get a quick consult um, as we could when I was a fellow. Um, So that's another limitation if we're self-standing hospital with with only the pediatric pathologists, we um, fortunately in our group have uh, someone who's primarily adult a hospital where this person was the go-to pediatric pathologist. She is board certified in pediatric pathology. And so she's our, our, our adult, um, the person we consult for adult cases. Um, but we also uh, are pretty free to send out a case that's, that's um, that we feel is beyond our, we've done what we can to try to, to categorize it or, or diagnose it. We think we know what we, what it is. Um, and so we, we will send out uh, cases in consultation. You know, something I would share, whether it's a, a community practice or an academic practice is that in pediatric path, I think there's a unique relationship with the clinicians. They're, they are often down. Um, we don't live in a we don't live in a box. Um, we we communicate a lot. We talk a lot. Um, we sit across the microscope a lot, or today the Zoom camera a lot. Um, and it, and it's a really very integrated um, type of care 
for the child where pathology is really very, very important. Bev, you've worked a lot in clinical pathology. Talk a little bit about how clinical pathology and pediatric pathology is different than clinical pathology on the adult side. Yeah, it's... um. I would I would share that similar to the integration you see in anatomic pathology, you see that often in clinical pathology. Um, when I when I came to Atlanta, when I moved here from Dallas, I mean, the clinicians found me right away, you know, and and we would enter into a dialogue and saying, what do you need? And and it was basically things like we need pediatric reference ranges for some of the things that that we don't have right now. Um, genetic testing is a huge part of uh, clinical pathology in pediatric medicine. So how do you optimize uh, the genetic testing? How do you provide the best, best reports for your clinicians? Um, and um, I would say just the basics of there's, there's often, even though we have in Atlanta, we have a total of one, two, plus eight, plus nine, um, however many labs that is. There's two major labs and then a lot of urgent cares um, and then a research lab, but it's really all under our umbrella. It's It's not huge like it is in a lot of the adult systems. And so um, our clinicians find us and they, they, they focus on uh, taking care of the kids, taking care of the parents. And the other thing that is pretty true about pediatric medicine is that it has a sense of urgency that sometimes adult medicine doesn't have. Uh, you got a kid and you got parents, you know? And so it's, it's really meeting, meeting those needs and being very nimble and being very relational, quite honestly, with your, with your uh, clinician colleagues. So we've talked a lot about the different opportunities there are in pediatric pathology. We mentioned earlier how people with multiple fellowships under their belt can have opportunities in pediatric pathology. How do you guys see the field changing going forward? Do you think there's going to be a lot more subspecialization within pediatric pathology? I don't know, but I'll tell you that it's moving towards molecular. If you've got any secondary uh, fellowship you'd like to do is, is having a clear understanding, uh, understanding of molecular and the pathways and and you know how how um, these tumors. I mean, they they've become targets for uh, treatment, and it's just huge. And every uh, diagnosis now are being based on on molecular um, um, mutations, and so that's what I would recommend is if you're going to do a second fellowship, molecular is the way to go. I feel that anywhere in pathology or like other areas in pathology, uh, you know, it'll be just our ability to adapt to new tools that are available to us, whether it's molecular or uh, digital imaging, you know, and how we integrate that. I mean, I think there's always going to be, at least I, I'm optimistically hopeful that there's always going to be a need for, for, for morphology and all of this to, to sort of drive the ship and use all these tools appropriately and in the right context, um, you know, that's, that's where we'll continue to be needed. And also to, to, to synthesize all of that um, for our, our clients, the clinicians and, and the families, so that we're able to put all of it together in a way that's 
digestible and accessible to all of them. I think those are areas where we can still um, remain relevant and, um, and still contribute to the field. I don't think anyone will replace the pediatric autopsy and pediatric perinatal and the ability we have. As far as subspecialization, you know, it's hard to predict, but but the areas that I think I'm most used to seeing subspecialization in a pediatric hospital is to have a very strong neuropathology, be that somebody who is boarded in neuropathology or just has a lot of experience in it as a pediatric pathologist. Um, renal pathology is, is an area that's often uh, requires expertise and hematopathology. And after that, I, I think that um, surgical pathology and clinical pathology are it, the joy of pediatric path is that, that it's, it's generalists, just generalists and people under the age of whatever, 16, 18, 21, however you define a child. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure I can see that changing a whole lot. Well, we've seen more subspecialized services develop at our hospital because the hospital has grown, but the pathologists to sign out on multiple subspecialty services because they enjoy doing many different things, that was part of what attracted them to pediatric pathology. I think like kind of talking about the molecular and how it's becoming more important, I think one thing that's a little unique about pediatric pathology and its relationship to molecular is that it's really outside of just the of just tumors too. It's like all about the perinatal diagnoses that, you know, affect um, people's, you know, children going forward. It's about um, even like in GI, like we're seeing like very early onset IBD that is associated with monogenetic um, abnormalities. And um, so I think that it's a unique type of molecular too that, that um, is kind of exciting and really will affect, you know, people going forward in their life. But um, at least for, for now too, I think morphology is important to really um, help guide what tests are ordered and what tests are ordered appropriately because when you order the incorrect test, sometimes it can uh, result in things that aren't, <laughs> results that don't make sense or, or maybe like aren't really what you're looking for. So I think that's kind of a unique um, sort of thing that pediatric pathology offers. Um, and I think, you know, subspecialization, I think there's more of it than there used to be. Even within our group, um, we have our consults that go um, based on um, special interests that people have. Um, but then uh, the background sort of cases that come through are um, are are general, and I I I hope that it stays that way because that's one of the things that I like about pediatric pathology pathology is I don't have to do the same thing every day. <laughs> when you think about it, pediatric pathology has always been near the forefront uh, of molecular diagnosis. I mean, going back to, to uh, Linus Pauling and the one gene, one protein uh, growing out of sickle cell anemia and uh, the two hit hypothesis growing out of retinoblastoma. I mean, mm -hmm. Pediatric pathology systems uh, are often more transparent with less environmental overlay uh, than the adult systems. And so 
they're, they're intellectually clearer and that, that lends itself uh, to, to exploration and, and research. That's a great thought. I, I love that. Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with everybody and catching up. I'm really glad to share pediatric pathology with our audience and really appreciate everybody contributing to this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for good seeing all of you. It's good to see you yeah. all. <laughs> I missed you. Yes. Nice. Yes. I know I can wait for the call meeting, hopefully. That's right. Crossed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Y'all stay safe and get vaccinated. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to Path Pod wherever you download your podcasts. Path Pod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.